Hi, it's Peter Martin here, Economics Editor of The Conversation. This is just a quick message to say that if you're interested in all the latest evidence-based analysis on politics, policy, economics, science, all of the issues making news in Australia, sign up today to our newsletter at theconversation.com. Now back to the podcast. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us. I'm Sananda Cray. And on today's episode, astrophysics student and The Conversation's editorial intern, Antonio Tarquinio, is exploring a topic that has captivated humans since the very beginning. In the case of, is there other life in the universe? I would say probably. I think we will discover life outside of Earth in my lifetime, if not that, in your lifetime. I think that we, there's a high likelihood that we are not alone in the universe. I think there's life out there. The universe is so unbelievably large, uh, makes me think that there's definitely life out there somewhere. These three voices you just heard, Ursula de Marco, Daniel Zucker, and Lee Spitler, are all astronomers at Macquarie University. They're space experts, and they all think that it's likely that we are not alone in the universe. But what might that life look like? Could it be slime mold, or bacteria, or intelligent life like us? That's where SETI comes in. SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and it's a global effort to detect signals from possible intelligent life outside of Earth through a project called Breakthrough Listen. Breakthrough Listen is um, a 10-year, $100 million program, and it's using world-class radio telescopes around the world. That's Danny Price. Dr. Danny Price, and I am the project scientist for Breakthrough Listen here at Parks. I spoke to Danny Price about the breakthrough listen work being done at the Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales and why we are searching for signs of intelligent life at all. Could you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and how you came to be interested in space? Well, I'm a uh, postdoc at Swinburne University and I run the breakthrough listen program here at Parkes and I also look for something else called fast radio bursts. I guess I got into astronomy just as a little kid. I always enjoyed looking up at the stars. You know, my teachers always called me a space cadet. I had a book called My Place in Space that I really liked. And I just always had an interest in uh, science. I had an opportunity to do a PhD in astrophysics. And so I just kept on following those. And suddenly I realized I was an astronomer. So what does your day-to-day life look like as an astronomy researcher? There's a lot of uh, boring bits in any job. Um, there's a lot of sitting in front of the computer, writing bits of code, uh, going to meetings. But there's also a lot of really interesting things. So one thing in particular, I do a lot of building of radio telescopes. And so there's a lot of engineering that goes on there. So, you know, if a new uh, compute platform comes out and, you know, a new Intel chip or a new graphics card or something that we want to use, I might have to figure out how we can do the science on those uh on those platforms and uh, get the best science out of it. So how does the Breakthrough Listen project search for intelligent alien life? Uh, Yeah, Breakthrough Listen, it's um, a 10-year, 
$100 million program, and it's using world-class radio telescopes around the world. Here in Parks, the 64-meter dish here in Australia, also a 100-meter dish in West Virginia, in Green Bank. And we're also using some optical telescopes, one's called the Automated Planet Finder, and that's in California. We're later this year going to start using the Meerkat telescope in South Africa, and that's different because there's 64 antennas that all act as if one facility, and so it has different capabilities. And we're using these to look for anything that is in some way artificial, so clearly not a natural process. So normally when you have a radio telescope and you look at space, you find things like uh, you might find hydrogen gas, and that gives off a particular spectrum. You might find sources that get called continuum sources, just they give off a lot of energy at all frequencies. The kinds of things, the kind of technology that we have on Earth are very different. They have very different spectral properties and characteristics. So, for example, radio that we produce on Earth it looks very, very different to the kind of radio waves that you get from space. And so by looking for artificial signals, you can use that as a tracer for some kind of a techno signature uh, or a tracer that there's something intelligent that's able to manipulate the electromagnetic spectrum and signal through space. So you mentioned that the radio signals that we detect in space are different to the ones on Earth. How is that so? Well, there's kind of two main things that are different. The first thing is that we can produce very, very narrow frequencies. So if you think of the frequency spectrum as billions of different channels, we can produce things that only fill up one channel at a time. So a really good example of that is if you take a radio telescope and you point at the Voyager spacecraft, which is about 20 billion kilometers away now, we can pick up that signal very easily, even though that signal itself is only about 20 watts, which is around the same as an old fridge light bulb. And that's because that signal is concentrated into a very specific frequency. And so when you scan the frequency channels, if you find something that's a very narrow band signal, uh, you know that it must be created by an artificial process because there's nothing out there in space that produces anything like that that we know of through a natural process. So your involvement in the Breakthrough Listen project is mainly to do with instrumentation, so manufacturing instrumentation and designing it. Can you give us a brief explanation to this role and how it's different from observing? I guess instrumentation is just a fancy way of saying building stuff. And a lot of what happens nowadays is uh, we try and piggyback as much as we can off commercial, off-the-shelf components. So we don't try and build our own uh, processing chips. We try and use the ones that are from Intel and AMD. And we try and make it so we get the signals from the telescope into these computers, and then we use the computers to do the number crunching. But to do that, you need to get the signals from uh, free space. They travel through space. They hit the telescope, and they go into the receiver. The receiver then converts it from something in free space into a voltage on a coaxial cable. And that voltage from the coaxial cable then needs to get into the computer. And to do that, you need to digitize it. You need to turn it into ones and zeros. And that's where my role really comes in. I, uh, I build things that do that interface between the, uh, the analog realm of voltages on cables and get it into computers. So what made you interested in doing that? I've always just been a little bit more hands-on. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, astronomy and astrophysics is a, a massive field, right? It literally means anything that isn't on Earth, basically. You know, it's the study of the entire universe. Instrumentation and uh, just being hands-on is just something that I've always found a lot more interesting. Uh, I mean, I remember during my PhD, um, I built this thing in the lab, this spectrometer, 
and it kind of worked and we you know connected it to some noise sources and test sources and it seemed to do what it was supposed to do and then we we shipped it i was over in the uk and we shipped it here to parks and connected it to the telescope and an astronomer who's more of an observationalist uh, said let's point at this particular galaxy so we pointed at that galaxy and we waited a few minutes and i ran a few scripts and then on my screen i saw this signature of this galaxy that we'd picked up and for me picking up a signal from 400 million light years away and seeing this galaxy this very characteristic signal come up on the screen was really just you know really it, it's something that really made me happy how much time is devoted to the breakthrough listen project and how crucial is it to achieving the goal of finding signs of intelligent life so we know that finding life is going to be difficult the the first few years we're using Parkes telescope, the Green Bank telescope, and this automated planet finder telescope, which is actually an optical telescope. But we're also partnering with other telescopes and we're bringing the Meerkat telescope online later in the year. So we're not sure if Parkes will be the one telescope that finds it, but with the two big telescopes we're starting with, the uh, Green Bank and Parkes, one is in the Northern Hemisphere, the other is in the South. So you kind of divide up the sky there. So when you think of it that way, it's a 50-50 chance which one could find it. But really, we think the life is rare. We don't think that there's aliens out there everywhere who are trying to contact us with really, really bright signals. We think it's going to be a hard and a arduous process and doing a lot of data analysis and looking through as much of the frequency spectrum as we can with as many telescopes as we can. So Parks is uh, what it's doing in particular is a survey of the Milky Way, the, the plane. Uh, so when you look up and you see the Milky bit in the sky, that's what we're using Parks for mainly. And that means we can get a lot of stars, because the reason it looks like that is it's just a lot of stars that are very dense. We can look at a lot of stars with that. And so all of those stars, they're not the closest stars in the, the Milky Way. They're a bit further away. They're out, the ones in the plane go out to about you know tens of thousands of light years. So w- means that if there were signal there, it would have to be stronger than if we looked at the really close stars, just because it has further to travel and we may not be sensitive enough. So it's really the thing that Parks is really going to tell us is out of the billions of stars that we, we can look at through that survey, what fraction of stars do we see uh, any kind of artificial signals f- from? And so it's, uh, it's allowing us to probe a large volume of stars, um, but at a lower sensitivity. So what type of signal are we expecting to see or are we looking to see with the Breakthrough Listen project? What are we expecting to find? Well, I mean, we're not 100% sure. The the main thing we're looking for is some kind of signal that's an outlier that we can say is definitely artificial as opposed to a natural process. That said, we have found some natural processes that were unexpected and that we weren't expecting to find. One of these was a fast radio burst that went off during one of our observations. And a fast radio burst is what it sounds like. It's a burst that's fast. It lasts about a millisecond. But within that millisecond, the amount of energy that that burst puts off is around the same as the sun puts out in a couple of months or maybe even a year. So it's a lot of energy in in one little pulse. And that came from billions of light years away. It came from a very long distance, which is why we know it had to be so bright. And there's still no explanation as to exactly what they are. This is something that we think is astrophysical. We don't Uh, have any reason to believe it isn't astrophysical. We think it's probably something to do with neutron stars and plasma and some complicated thing, but the theorists haven't really figured out what would have to happen to make that occur. 
it's a signal that's kind of unexpected that we want to make sure that we're sensitive to in our search strategy. So the fact we found it is very good. Anyway, so we can find these astrophysical signals. We're looking for artificial signals, um, and we're not exactly sure what it'll look like, but when we see it, we'll, we'll know. So the closest artificial signal, I guess, we've somewhat detected is the fast radio bursts. So are we expecting to see something similar to that? Well, we could do. I mean, in terms of what would indicate a signal was artificial, fast radio bursts have a particular frequency characteristic where their high-frequency components arrive a little bit before their low-frequency components, and this is called dispersion. It's similar to when you put white light through a prism and you get a rainbow out. The other side, it's the different frequencies of light are affected in different rates, and so there's a little bit of a time delay when they come out. But over really long distances, that can become uh, significant. If we saw something that was similar to a fast radio burst but had a different, slightly different characteristics, we could tell that it was uh, artificially engineered. Fast radio bursts themselves are a good way of, it's a compression of energy and time. Uh, in general, we've been looking for compressions in frequency space so uh, concentrating all your power into a narrow frequency channel and that's something that we do here on earth when we want to uh, transmit over long distances so what happens if we find a signal that we conclude is from intelligent life well i think that would fundamentally change the world if we were to do so there's kind of the what would you in the short term what happens in the really long term which case i I don't think i'm qualified to answer and what happens in the midterm in the very short term we want to make sure that it's definitely not uh, red herring we want to make sure that it's a bona fide signal and so we would probably pick up the phone and call some other telescopes and get them to look and confirm that what we found seems to be there so that's kind of the first thing we do once we were happy as a group that this was interesting we probably wouldn't say that it was definitely extraterrestrial intelligence we would try and get as much information as we can but open it up to the broader scientific community and at that stage we would also open it up and allow other people to know that we found something that is interesting there are some conventions that we would likely follow there are colleagues who have come up with protocols some of those protocols probably need to be updated because it was pre-facebook and pre-twitter and you know information can spread very fast now so that's kind of the midterm as the information would get out there. And the long term, I think it would change the way we view the world. If we knew we were not the only ones out there, it would really change the way that we would see the universe. And, you know, I think it just opens your mind as to the possibilities that we have. And, you know, hopefully it means more money for science, for looking into space travel, for just trying to learn more about the universe. So I think you might have already mentioned this, but what would it mean to you personally? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm coming into this 10-year program and I'm hopeful we'll find something, but I, I have assigned a pretty low probability to myself that we will. I'm not getting my hopes up, I think. You know, there's a small chance we'll find something. I think this is a long-term human endeavor. It's something that we need to continue to do and it's in many ways a mirror back on ourselves on on the capabilities we have so the search strategies we're using are um, are based on our own technologies and we're not trying to look for ourselves we're trying to look for artificial signals but the ideas and ways we can do that are constrained by the technology that we have and so at the moment we're using a lot of radio telescopes and optical telescopes but we uh, breakthrough listen have been you know working with other telescopes uh to see if we can get those online. Um, People have talked about gravitational waves. That's still a way off because we've only just been able to open that window to the universe and detect gravitational waves. 
but the the act of looking and of of trying to explain the universe to try and see if we are the only ones out there um it really does reflect back upon ourselves by looking at what we're able to do as well and as we go on as technology keeps on getting more and more sensitive the number of stars and the quality of the data we can get also gets better so it's definitely a long-term endeavor i would love to find something myself i think it really would change the world but i think uh, more than likely it's something that we'll continue to do um, and continue to just figure out where our place is in space so really quickly you mentioned something called gravitational waves so can you explain to us what that is and how it's different to the electromagnetic spectrum Uh, understanding of the universe and of physics that there are four fundamental forces there's gravity electromagnetism strong and weak nuclear forces strong weak nuclear forces are the things that uh, keep atoms together and they're not something that we really use in day-to-day communication the ones that we're more familiar with day-to-day are gravity when we jump up we come back down to the ground and electromagnetism it's something that we use a lot in our communications and you know magnets and light gravity itself If you think of space like a fitted sheet and you put something heavy on it like a bowling ball, it will make that sheet drag down and it will curve it. If you get something small like a ping pong ball and then put it on that sheet, it will roll toward the bowling ball and it will make the uh, sheet move a little bit but not quite as much. If you imagine you had two bowling balls in that sheet and they were moving around each other, um, like orbiting essentially, you would notice that the sheet would be moving quite a lot. And if, as they got closer and closer, uh, the sheet would kind of wobble a bit. So when you have things moving in space and like two bowling balls going around each other, it can create ripples on that sheet. And those ripples are what we refer to as gravitational waves. And those are very, very difficult to detect. So when a gravitational wave goes past, what actually happens is that it changes and distorts the matter that it goes through. So when a gravitational wave comes through Earth, the Earth gets a little bit smaller in one axis and bigger in the other axis. And it's imperceptible to us, even if there's really, really large black holes going around each other we we can't tell Uh, but we did manage to build an instrument that's so sensitive that it can detect when two very large masses start spiraling and making these gravitational waves and this is a new window to the universe we couldn't see that before we knew what happened but we couldn't actually see these gravitational waves and so it's just opened a new way of looking at the universe so in astronomy there's a lot of hard work there's a lot of grant applications a lot of things that many people would find quite tedious. So for you, what keeps the drive to keep learning, to keep creating and to keep discovering? I find it a bit of a journey and there are some you know, arduous hikes and things where you're going through sand, which might be writing a grant. But when you're writing that grant, you have an idea behind it and coming up with new ideas is the, the part that I find fun. And so there's a lot of arduous things we have to do, but We get through it because we are so excited to discover something new and find an answer. And even if that answer is just a very small thing, like what happens if I change this number in my code and if you're doing a simulation and then you find that it just breaks everything, uh, it's still interesting to know. Um, And it's lots and lots of small steps and small discoveries. And in terms of the search for intelligent life, we know that's a difficult trek. We know that that's going to take a very long time. Um, and it's really finding those steps forward and appreciating the, the beauty and the wonder as you take that journey uh, that really 
keeps me going and I, I know a lot of my colleagues as well and I think scientists in general you know we do really enjoy the science and we do it for the science and there are other things that you have to do you have to make sure that you communicate your science with people that may involve writing grants so that you're communicating it to the government it may involve going out and talking to people even if you're nervous and you don't enjoy public speaking it's something that we as scientists have to do Danny Price thank you very much for your time thank you That was Danny Price, the project scientist for Breakthrough Listen and an astronomer at Swinburne University. And here's John Sarkisian, an operations scientist at the Parkes Radio Telescope, which collects data for the Breakthrough Listen SETI research. You know, can you imagine the profound impact it will have on, on us as, as human beings it, when we discover that there are other civilizations just like us elsewhere in the universe? At this time, the only place we know in the entire universe where there is life is right here on the Earth. We haven't even found microbes on Mars or the Moon or anywhere, you know, um, let alone you know intelligent creatures that we can communicate with. And so, if something is found, it'll be extremely world-shaking news, if you like, you know, extremely profound. And so, for me, that's why it's such an exciting project. We certainly hope that we will find something um, in the time. I tell people that if there's anything to be found, this project will find it. If we don't find it, it's probably because there isn't anything nearby to find. Here's Ursula de Marco again. If you mean just life outside of our own Earth, I would say I think we will discover life outside of Earth in my lifetime, if not that in your lifetime. But life is also slime old life, bacterial life. And I think that type of life is probably just everywhere. Even Mars, subsurface Mars, would have possibly bacterial life. Europa, a moon of Jupiter, would potentially have bacterial life. The question, though, is, is there other intelligent, complex life out there? It's a lot harder to have the time to develop the characteristics we have developed on Earth. And so that type of intelligent and or complex life might be very rare and her colleague, Daniel Zucker, an associate professor in astronomy at Macquarie University. Define alone. If you mean, is there other intelligent life in the universe? I think that's a more difficult question. In the case of, is there other life in the universe? I would say probably, because from our understanding of what happened on Earth, basically as soon as life could arise on Earth as soon as the conditions were suitable for life, there was life. And we're finishing today with Sarah Caddy, a master's student in astronomy at Macquarie University, on why this question even matters in the first place. There are other stars, there are other planets around those stars, um, there are possibly other people out there as we just spoke about already, and then you go, okay, um, there's this entire universe out there and yeah, perhaps we need to be a little bit kinder to each other because we're the only people that we know of that we can talk to and this tiny little bubble that we live on, this tiny little speck is insignificant in terms of our research and in terms of astronomy in general, but it's the only place that we can live on and it's the only place that we can call home. So we need to be incredibly careful with it and we need to look after it and we need to be a little bit kinder to each other.
Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks to Antonio Tarquinio for recording, editing and producing today's episode and to all the scientists who took the time to talk to us. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used music in this episode by Kai Engel and Poddington Bear from Free Music Archive. You can find a full list of credits and sign up for our daily newsletter all on our site at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.